Well, it is so good to be back. I was able to bring greetings from Grace Rancho to the church in Uganda, the Kumba Midway Community Bible Church, although Hans will correct me if I said that right. Turns out he's very good at pronouncing African words, while I, on the other hand, am very bad. I can't remember them, and I always get them wrong, but I was able to bring that church greetings from you, to share with them that you have been praying for them, to share with them that you care about them, that the work they're doing is valuable. And now I bring back to you greetings from them, believers on the other side of the globe. Uh, They are a vibrant and healthy church in the middle of Uganda. And I come back with reports that Jesus is in fact alive, that the gospel is spreading. One thing I had no idea of before going out there was that there is a something like a revival happening in Africa right now of sound churches being planted in Zambia, in Kenya, in Uganda, And it is incredible the work that we are able to be a part of in partnering with Sufficiency of Scripture Ministries. Um, I feel like I could talk till Wednesday. Uh, So I'm going to have to hold myself back. We're we're not going to spend this morning talking about Uganda. Uh, At the end of the month, the last Sunday of April, I believe, we'll have some time in the evening to show some pictures, present some slides. Uh, Hans and I will be able to give you an update and talk about the ministry. And um, I think you'd be really encouraged by it. So I want to just put that in your brain so you can uh, jot it down and make sure you're there in a few weeks to hear about the Lord's work there in Uganda. Um, This morning, we're just going to continue through the text as we normally do. And I want to have you grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. I don't have any clever introduction. This morning we're going to look at Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. I confess that I feel an overwhelming sense of inadequacy before this passage. It's so deep, and there's so much mystery, and there's such lofty concepts, things so wonderful, so incredible and inscrutable, that as I studied, I almost despair of being able to adequately present what's here. I found myself, as I was writing my sermon regularly traveling to the boundaries of my own vocabulary to try to express the wonder of this event. So while I feel pretty inadequate, um, I guess that's good because I'm dependent on the Holy Spirit to do His work in us and to teach us. And I'm confident that the Lord wants to use this passage in our lives This morning, it has been the prayer of Christians throughout the centuries, throughout generations. It has been the prayer that they would come to understand more deeply the love that Christ has demonstrated toward them. 
It has been the subject of hymns written and poems written. One such hymn is called, Oh, Make Me Understand It. And the refrain goes, Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to Thee, the Holy One, to take away my sin. And that has been my prayer studying this passage. Oh, help me, Lord, to understand it. Help me to grasp this. What it means that the Holy, Eternal Son of God would bear away my sin. This is what I've been praying for you. That we would take it in. That we would grasp the glory that we would understand what it means that Christ has taken away our sin. It's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to look at verses 32 to 42. I'm going to read the entire passage. We'll begin studying it. Verse 32. <clears throat> they went to a place called... Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you still asleep? Do you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. for Their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, a betrayer is at hand. Oh Lord, that He would make us understand this, right? That what is happening here in this garden. Let me give you some context. It's Thursday night of the last week of Jesus' life. Remember, just on Sunday, He marched into Jerusalem like a king and He was recognized as the Messiah by the crowds. And just recently, earlier this evening, after days of teaching in the temple, now... Uh, he had settled down with the disciples. He had eaten the Passover meal with them. He had predicted that one of them would betray him. 
He instituted the Lord's Supper. He transformed the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper, a new meal given to the church. He told them that this bread was His body and the cup was His blood. He knew that He was going to die. He had been predicting it now for chapters in Mark. This very night He had talked about it. The disciples are shocked when they are told that they're all going to fall away. There in verse 27, that the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will be scattered. They can't believe it. Peter in particular says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Expressing his pride, believing that he's much stronger than he actually is. Jesus tells him, hey, no, not only will you leave me once, you will deny me Three times, Peter doubles down in verse 31 emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all said the same, it says. And so late that night, they head to a place called Gethsemane. It's a garden to area. It is recorded elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus had come here from time to time to pray. There would have been olive trees all around him. It would have been dark. At this point, it's probably past midnight. There's no street lamps. There's no uh, cars roaring by, headlights. So it's a quiet place. It's a dark place. It had been a long week of teaching. He's probably tired, exhausted even. The disciples certainly are. Mediterranean climate during this time of year. It was probably cool, perhaps there in the mid-60s. And this is the setting of one of the most important events in the history of the world. The fate of the world is on His shoulders. Heaven and hell weigh upon Him. We could even say the fate of millions will be determined by how he fares this night. This setting reminds us of an earlier garden, doesn't it? Of an earlier Adam, an earlier temptation, a temptation that would plunge the entire human race into sin. The fate of the world was on the first Adam's shoulders. And you remember what happened there as he failed. And in this garden, the second Adam comes to face a much greater temptation. And if he should fail, all will be lost. And in this scene before the cross, Jesus begins to peer forward into the abyss of suffering that is about to claim him. It's not that he didn't know suffering was coming. He did. As I said, he has already been predicting it. He has already talked to his disciples about it. He knew even the specifics of the cross. But here, something new in his mind begins to take shape. He looks not only at the death that he will face, but at the cup that he will drink. The fullness of the suffering he will experience, he begins to stare at 
and reflect upon and ponder and the reality of it all begins to settle in in a new and unique way. And in this moment, the eternal Son of God is tempted to swerve from the path that God has sent him on to abort the Father's plan of salvation. And it is an incredible, dramatic scene. I want to ask some questions to explore the text. I want to ask these questions as we walk through it to draw out from it the meaning and understand it in a deeper way. The first question is, how did Jesus face this suffering? And then to ask, what was Jesus experiencing? Then third, what did Jesus ask the Father to do? Fourth, what kind of people did Jesus suffer for? And last, to Think about, what does this mean for us? Our first question we're going to consider is, how did Jesus face his suffering? Take a look again at verse 32. It's a very simple observation that any one of you reading this passage could draw out from the text. It's right there. It says that they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Sit here while I pray. If you knew that suffering was about to fall upon you, that perhaps at the end of this week you would would experience some trauma, some tragedy that you'd never experienced in all your life, what would you do? If you knew that it was coming, if every hour was one hour closer to the coming tragedy, how would you react Perhaps as the hour drew nearer, your pulse would quicken. You'd perhaps panic. Maybe you'd go try to run away from it, see if you could escape what was to come. Here, we see Jesus' response to the coming suffering is that He wants to pray. Jesus prayed. Suffering is coming His way, and what does He do? He wants to get away. He wants to have some time in private because He wants to talk to His Father. If you've been paying attention for the two years now that we've been in Mark, you've seen that Jesus does this quite frequently. In Mark chapter 1, after a long day of ministry, He gets up early, He goes, the text says, to a desolate place to pray. His disciples don't know where he is. They have to go find him. In the middle of his ministry, just after feeding the 5,000, the disciples are brought away and they're brought to a desolate place to pray. But then even after that, Jesus sends his disciples on a boat across the lake and Jesus then goes up a mountain all alone so he can pray. And now here he's coming to the end of his life. And what does he want to do? He wants to pray. Church, a simple observation here is if we want to be like Jesus, we should be people who pray. If you would like to imitate your Savior, which is what every Christian is, you should be someone who faces tomorrow with prayer. That you should desire to begin your days with prayer and to go throughout your days in prayer. 
and to conclude every day in prayer, living in constant communion with your heavenly Father. We pray together as a church every Sunday because we actually believe our Father in heaven does hear our prayers. He knows us. He recognizes our frailty and our need. And He invites us to come to Him. Are you a person who prays? Will you face this week having prayed about it? Will you face temptation having brought it to God in prayer? Do you begin your weeks in prayer? Are your weeks filled with prayer? Are you concluding your weeks with prayer? Would your life be characterized by prayer? There's a lot of ministry opportunities and a lot of service you can do, but all of that is nothing if we do not pray like Jesus. Do you realize that prayerlessness is functional atheism? That to be prayerless is to unsay all your good theology? That when we do not pray, we are acting as if all the things we know about God are not true. And we are casting God in a bad light when we don't pray. How often are we guilty of exhausting every other option and trying every other door before we go, well, I guess it's time to pray now. How come prayer isn't at the beginning and in the middle and throughout? I am so encouraged when after church there's mingling going on in this very room and I'll look across the room and I'll see a group of men arms around each other praying for each other about something that's coming up in the week or a bundle of women over here praying about something that they've shared that's a struggle. This is how Christians live. This is all our relationships are not just person to person. There is a God involved. Why would we not talk to Him about the things we're going to through? He is omnipotent and fatherly and kind and generous. Do you pray? I mean, how much of a colossal fool would you have to be to read what the Bible says about God? And read these invitations that the Bible has, inviting us to Him, coming to Him, inviting us to lay ourselves down toward Him, praying to Him, laying our requests at His feet. How foolish would we have to be? Not pray. Sit here while I pray, Jesus says. How did Jesus face His suffering? It was by praying. We sometimes think that Jesus is some superman. None of this stuff actually affects him. None of the pain that he goes through is real pain. Oh no, he faced this as a man. We'll see this in a moment. And he did so by praying. Our second question. What was Jesus experiencing? What was Jesus experiencing? Look at verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John... And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Peter, James, and John, there's perhaps the reason that he took them is 
Because in the previous chapter 10, James and John both asked if they could sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his coming glory. And Jesus said, well, are you able to drink the cup that I'll drink and share in the baptism that I'm about to be baptized in? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said, well, you will share a little bit in the cup that I drink and the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. In other words, if you want my glory, you've got to share in my suffering. I believe that's part of the reason why James and John were invited to be a part of Jesus' agony in the garden is because they wanted to share in the glory. Jesus says, all right, you're going to share with my suffering. You're going to, you're going to bear it a little bit with me. Why Peter? Peter was the leader of the group. He had just said in verse 31, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Okay, if you're willing to die with me, how about willing to suffer with me? Come with me in the garden. Watch me agonize. Watch this experience that I'm going to go through. I want you to bear it with me. He takes them there with him. All of the disciples came into the garden, but Jesus went off by himself with Peter, James, and John. But even them, it says he went a little further from them. They get a little distant from them and It says what began to happen, that Jesus began, you look at those words there in verse 33, to be greatly distressed. See that word? Greatly distressed and troubled. This is incredible just having studied Jesus' life up to this point. The the man has been untouchable, unshakable, unflaggable. I mean, there's been nothing that anyone could throw at him that would move him at all. He was indomitable. And he's distressed. Greatly distressed. The word distressed in English, I don't even think it captures the weight of the the shock that we should experience in reading that Jesus is is feeling this way. The word is translated in chapter 9 verse 15 to, to describe a certain kind of surprise amazement. In chapter 16, verse 5, the same word is translated alarmed, and it's used to describe the the women who go and see the the empty tomb, and they they see an angel, and it says they're alarmed. That's the word, that's the idea uh, being described here, that Jesus is uh, alarmed, that he's beginning to experience this great distress, this, this great sorrow, this surprise, this amazement at the suffering that he's about to partake in. That word troubled, it contains elements of fear, elements of bewilderment, uncertainty. We almost feel like we can't ascribe these words to Jesus, can we? Fear? Troubled? Anxious? That's what the words mean. Alarmed. It's as if he's peering into the suffering that is about to take place and he's horrified. He tells verse 34, he tells his disciples. He doesn't hide it. He's, he's not trying to act as if all is well. He says in verse 34, my soul, the, the deepest part of who I am, is very sorrowful. One translation says, deeply grieved, exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. 
I could die over this sorrow. I'm so sad, so heartbroken, so shaken, so depressed, so discouraged, so bewildered. My body doesn't know how to take it. It says that as he goes on from there, verse 35, it says, going a little farther, he fell on the ground. He collapses. His body can no longer stand under the weight of the grief and the agony that he's experiencing here in the garden. He tells them, remain here, watch, I'm going to go a little farther. And as he moves away from them, he can't stand up. I imagine his whole body is trembling. His stomach is turning. His head is pounding. His heart is racing. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, this is being described by the author there. And he writes, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He's not going off to pray quietly, whispering by an olive tree. He's crying out. He's wailing. He's sobbing. Lord, Father, If there's any way that you could remove this cup from me. Crying out. Luke includes the detail that he's sweating drops of blood. Which is an actual condition called hematidrosis. Which is when your body is under such severe anxiety and uncertainty. The blood vessels around the sweat glands begin to contract and dilate violently, that they begin to rupture. Blood then enters into those sweat glands and it is secreted through the pores of the skin. He's literally dying of distress. I wonder if any of you who have in your mind a Jesus who is so divine that He's not even human anymore. You have a Jesus in your mind that His divinity just swallows up His humanity. And so you think that nothing really hurts Him. The bullets all bounce off. Nothing's really threatening Him. Nothing could possibly frighten or alarm Him. He's like an actor on a set. The guns are all plastic. The bullets are all blanks. The blood is fake. Jesus couldn't actually be experiencing this as it's described, could He? (laughs) Oh church, He is. He is that troubled. He is that distressed. He is an absolute wreck here in the garden. He is really suffering. His pain is real. His bewilderment is real. His fear is real. His blood is real. And all all those years ago, he's in that garden, gut-wrenchingly sorrowful, agonizing over the thought of what's about to come his way. By all worldly standards, He's an embarrassment. I mean, this is our God? This this is our Savior? This is the one we follow? Look at Him. Crying in a garden. 
a weakling, one might say. Why doesn't he show courage in the face of his death? Like so many others who have, even unbelievers showed courage as they laid their lives down in various ways. Socrates, famously, when he was sent to death by poison, he took his cup of hemlock and drank it without fear, without tears, without protest. How come Jesus is so emotional? How come Jesus is so distressed and disheveled by this event? You could even think about Christian martyrs. You think about Stephen that you can read about in Acts, standing confidently assured that he will die a martyr in God's approval of him. Or you can think about Christians throughout the ages. I think of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They're being burnt at the stake. And Latimer cries out with courage to his friend Ridley, Play the man, Master Ridley. Bold and courageous even as they burn. Where's that in Jesus? Why is it that some face martyrdom with such courage and confidence while Jesus appears to be so utterly distraught by His coming death? The answer will come as we consider our next question. What did Jesus ask the Father to do in His prayer? Look at verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. You see, This should make it clear that what Jesus is so distressed by, it's not merely that he's about to die. It's not merely that the death will be torturous on a cross. He mentions something in this text. He says, remove this cup from me. He's concerned about the cup. What does that mean? The cup is an Old Testament metaphor, a rich symbol all throughout the Old Testament that symbolizes God's wrath against sin. Psalm 11, verse 6, The cup of the wicked is filled with fire and sulfur and scorching wind. Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17, it's called the cup of God's wrath and the cup of staggering. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, Those who die without forgiveness will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I want you to see this and mark this and recognize this crucial reality. Jesus is not panicking because there's death in the next few hours coming his way. 
or even because the death will be excruciatingly painful on the cross. It is not thorns. It is not nails. It is not whips that so causes this agony. It is the cup. The cup of the righteous wrath of His Father that He will drink to the dregs. If you're not a Christian this morning, so glad you're here. Welcome to return anytime. And you might think that Christianity is is mainly about certain behaviors that Christians have, certain ethics that we adopt from the Scriptures. Those are not the main thing. The main thing is this concept I'm about to describe to you right now. That Jesus will take the cup of God's wrath. He will drink it himself. This is incredible. See, the Bible teaches that the fundamental problem with mankind is that we are sinners. That God, because he is holy, must punish sin. He is good and He is just and therefore He must punish sin. He is merciful. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save us from His sins. And how did He do that? He came to bear the penalty of sin upon Himself. For everybody who would turn and trust Him. He came to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. To take it upon Himself. The Bible even says, according to the language Paul uses, that Jesus came in one sense, listen to this, to become sin for us. That Jesus is to be the sin bearer that He would bear our sins in His body on the tree. He was perfectly innocent, spotless, pure, undefiled, had never sinned, had only ever enjoyed perfect harmony with His Father. And yet, He is looking forward to the cup of the Father's wrath. And He's looking into it, and it startles Him. And He's agonized by this fact that He Himself will be identified as the sinner. The more holy you are, the more you despise your sin, right? If you don't hate your sin, then you don't really feel bad about it. It doesn't really mess you up inside. It doesn't bring a sense of guilt or shame. The more holy you are, the the more sin is just repugnant to you. You want to flee from it. And to consider that Jesus, the, the Holy One, would be treated as a sinner. That He would, in one mysterious sense, become sin. That He would take upon Himself our sin. And that He would be treated as sin. In in one sense, Jesus is the least prepared to face this. 
He would, it would be utterly disgusting to him and to be considered filthy though he was pure. He is agonizing over the reality that he will face the cup of the wrath of God against sin because he himself will take on his own person sin itself. He will bear on that cross our sins. In other words, the suffering of Christ is worse than just thorns and nails and whips and scourging. The suffering of Christ is something that you cannot see in a painting. It's something that you would never see in a sculpture. The eyes cannot behold it in a film. Watch the passion of the Christ. It does not capture the sufferings of Christ. Because the sufferings of Christ are more than what meets the eye. Because when He suffers... He is experiencing the full fury of the wrath of God Almighty against sin. And He in that moment is being treated as a sinner by the Father whom He loves. Help us to understand this. John Stott reflects on this reality. He says, To me it is ludicrous to suppose that Jesus is now afraid of pain, insult, and death? Socrates in the prison cell in Athens, according to Plato's account, took his cup of hemlock without trembling or changing color or expression. He then raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. When his friends burst into tears, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and be brave. He died without fear. Sorrow or protest? And then Stott asks, so was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or were there cups filled with different poisons? Ah, there's the difference. The sufferings of Christ are utterly unique. There is no one who has ever suffered like this. And nor will there ever be again anyone who has suffered like this. All the sins of all believers of all ages bundled up and put on Him. And He will pay all their penalties while He's there on that cross. Look at that word there in verse 36. It says, and he said, Abba, Father. Abba is a word that is an intimate way to address a father. It could be compared to something like Papa, or some have said Daddy even. That it's an intimate way to communicate love and affection toward your father. As I was reflecting on that, I was reminded of an article I read recently that described the last words of people as they're dying. What do do people say? What do people cry out when they're literally breathing their very last breaths? One German hospice nurse was quoted to have said, 
almost everyone is calling out for mommy or mama with their last breath. The most agonizing moment of life where life itself is departing, we cry out for that intimate relationship. Mama, save me. And here, Jesus cries out, Abba. He will not be delivered by His Father. Because in time, He will be put on that cross. His Father will treat Him, the sinner, and will pour out the full fury of His wrath upon Him. Non-Christian friend, if you're here this morning, the message of Jesus is that there is a cup of wrath over your head. And you have two options before you. Drink the cup yourself and drink it for all eternity. Experience the wrath of God yourself. Or look to Jesus. Turn from all other hopes and trust in Jesus and cling to Jesus and embrace Him and believe that on that cross He drank the wrath that you deserved. That He drank it all the way down and that there's no more wrath left for you to face. And Christian, rejoice! There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, you will not pay for any of your sins. Why? Because here, Jesus passed the test and He went to the cross and He paid for them all there. You don't owe anything anymore. You're free. You're not a Christian. That could be yours. Or third question, what did Jesus ask God to do? He asked that the cup would be removed. That there might be another way. Now there's so much mystery here. It just boggled my mind all week. It felt like I was climbing to Everest to try to summit the glories of this little phrase not what i will but what you will think with me for a second just that god the son incarnate has a will distinct from god the father in his human nature god the son does not want to be the sin bearer in that moment does not want to be separated from His Father in that way. And yet, He does not leave it there. He says, but what you will, He submits the will of His human nature to His Father's will and goes forth with the plan that they've committed to before the beginning of time. Incredible. Mysterious. Wonderful. Look at the last, the next question here. What kind of people did Jesus suffer for? This is almost comical, this next section. Look at verse 37. And he came and he found them sleeping. Peter, James, and John are, are snoozing here. And they, he said to them, Simon, why are you asleep? Did you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
They are. They're called to watch with him, to suffer with him, to share in the load with him, to bear his burden with him, to pray with him. And here they are snoozing, they're sleeping. The, the hour of Christ's greatest human need, and they have all failed him. Verse 39, again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came back. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. And I experienced jet lag this week. I kind of understand what the disciples are going through right now. Just your eyes just want to shut. You just Your head starts doing this thing. Some of you might be doing that right now. I'm just going to take it as you're agreeing with everything I'm saying. <laughs> They're just so tired. Their bodies are weary. Their eyes are heavy. Like in verse 40, again, he comes and he found them sleeping. Their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. They all are like, uh, we're tired. They don't know what to say. They feel a little ashamed of themselves, I'm sure. They know what Jesus asked them to do. You're supposed to stay up with me, to watch with me. And they repeatedly fail Jesus in his hour of need. They don't respond to him. They don't obey him. And Jesus continues to pray. Verse 41, he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Brave Peter, he was willing to die for Jesus. He can't even stay up with them. James and John, we want to share in the baptism. uh, We want to share in your cup of suffering. They can't even stay awake. They're all sleeping. Let me ask you this. Do these men bring anything special to Jesus' resume? (laughs) Jesus is suffering for them. And what are they contributing? Nothing. They are sleeping while He is being their champion and their hero. And He is going to succeed and bring salvation to His people. And they are sleeping. Jesus is doing it all. And they're sleeping. This is a great picture of salvation, isn't it? What a picture of how God saves sinners. Jesus does it all, and we contribute nothing. We are sleeping. And it is God who does the work. It's God who saves. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates. It's the Holy Spirit who seals. He does it all. The hero takes the cup of God's wrath that we deserve. He drinks it to the dregs. He accomplishes salvation. And in so doing, He saves us who trust in Him. And we do nothing. What do you add to the salvation that Christ God offers. You, you, you contribute nothing except the sins that make it necessary. These disciples are not these great noble men that Jesus says, for you, because of your worthiness, I will suffer for you. In the midst of their failure, He is suffering for them. I wonder if you hesitate to come to Jesus because you think that you lack enough righteousness. You don't want to become a Christian because there's skeletons in your closet. You look around at church, you think, well, here's some good people. Of course God would save them. They got it all together, not me. I've sinned too much. I've gone too far. I'm filthy. I'm vile. I'm a wretch. 
that's you. You need to know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And that if you feel yourself to be unqualified, welcome to the club. We all are. No one has any worth before a holy God. Nothing that they've done to earn His grace. It cannot be earned. We are all wicked sinners in need of sovereign grace. And so I would invite you, if you're holding yourself back, thinking your sins are too many, I tell you, Christ's mercy is more. Come to Him recognizing that the only people who will ever be saved are the ones who know that they are sinners. These are the people that He has come for, lived for, and died for. Jesus continues. He says, it is enough. The hour has come. The hour has come. When the first Adam failed in that garden all those years ago, there was a promise of a second Adam who would crush the serpent's head, but in crushing it, he himself would experience a wound. Now here in this garden, Jesus, the last Adam, says it's time. I will be crushed. But this is the only way to crush the serpent. Son of man, he says, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise! Wake up, boys! Rise! He doesn't say, we're getting out of here. He doesn't say, we've got to flee now. They're getting close. Let us be going, he says. See, my betrayer is at hand. Sure, in the darkness of that garden, in the silence of that place, they would have heard the sound of armor clinking. As the guards were getting closer, they would have maybe seen the twinkling of torches in the distance. Leading the way would be none other than Judas himself. The hour is at hand. He is resolved. That word enough, when he says it is enough, could also be translated, it is settled. Mind is made up. He will go to the cross. He will drink the cup of the wrath of God. He will suffer in the place of sinners so that they can be forgiven. Now what does this mean for us? First, church, This means that we should worship Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hero, our champion, our Savior. And if God did not spare His own Son, but graciously gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If this is what the Son went through and what the Father did, We are secure in the love of God. Love Him. Trust Him. Adore Him. If you doubt His love and mercy, go to Gethsemane. Stay there for a bit. And reflect on His agony. And know that the reason He does this is because He loves. And remember that the same love that put Him through this agony in the garden... It's the same love that He has now 
as He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. He is devoted to you. He is committed and will not let you go. Another thing this means for us Christians is that this is the New Testament pattern for life. You know that when Jesus prayed, yet not what I will, but what you will, He kind of set into motion the whole paradigm of Christian living. That all of your life and all the decisions that you make, you should subject your will to the will of the Father. You can almost open any page, any page of the New Testament, close your eyes, put your finger on the page, and you'll find something about this topic. That to be a Christian means to lay yourself down to submit yourself to the Father, to deny yourself earthly pleasure, earthly goods, and to live in pursuit of God's purposes. I wonder, are you a sacrificial person? Do you imitate the life of Christ here? Are you one that says, my will be done? And when your will is not done, there's anger, discontent, anxiety, or fear. My will be done in my marriage. In my parenting, it's my will be done. In my finances, it's my will be done. It's my time. I'm going to use it the way I want to use it. But what might it look like if the whole church together said every day, Lord, today, not my will, yours be done. Subjecting ourselves to the will of God revealed to us in His Word. Are you a sacrificial person? Throughout the ages, Christians have been sacrificial people. We got to see firsthand in Uganda the sacrificial love of these missionaries to leave the comforts of home. To see how several orphans in the villages have been adopted into these families and loved and cared for. Christians have been at the front lines of such orphan care, medical help, providing uh, for communities in need. And then Christians should be marked by this in their congregations, that we love one another sacrificially. We don't say it's all about me and my will and my wants and my desires. We lay those things down to serve and sacrifice for one another. I wonder if your life is marked by that, if you see yourself at all in the character of Christ, because this pattern ought to be adopted by every last one of us. We admire Jesus, don't we? Should we not imitate Him? The way He lays down His life says not what I will, but what you will. Have you been sacrificial this last week? Are you sacrificial with your spouse, your children, or with your neighbor? This text is like the first domino that begins to fall. Since this time, this moment where the Son of God submitted Himself in such agony to the will of the Father, He set in motion a long line of faithful Christians who have done the same thing. Whether they laid down their lives to death in imitation of their Savior, or they lived lives of exuberant generosity, sacrificial giving, living for others and not themselves, church 
pray that would characterize us. Pray that would characterize you. May we, when we forget what we are called to live like, may we go back Jesus in dark Gethsemane say, that's how I ought to live as well. Oh, make me understand it. Help me take it in what it meant to Thee, the Holy One, to take away my sins. You really suffered, Jesus. You really were distraught, disheveled, in agony and trouble. Not because you were a coward, because you drank the cup of the wrath of the Father. What a horrifying reality. Lord, every Christian in this room has been spared having to drink that cup, having to face your wrath because of what you've done. All glory, honor to you forever. Thank you, Jesus.